Today's reading is Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You just heard the reading of Psalm 1, which is like a grand entrance to Israel's national collection of poems. And it raises two questions, two choices. It gives us two ways to live with two outcomes. There's a way that leads to thriving and there's a way that leads to judgment and to doom. And this is how the collection of Israel's psalms begins. It's also how the first of five books that make up the collection is introduced. I want to show you, this is a chart from, that we've been using, we've been reading through the Bible with the Read the Bible Project guys, and this is a great chart that they've given. You can see there are five books, and Psalm 1 functions as the introduction to the entire collection, but there are five books as well that make up the collection of the psalms. And so this one is established at the very beginning, and it sounds promising to those of us who who listen to it, because there's this promise that if you follow God's way and you live in covenant faithfulness to God, you'll experience a life that is blessed. Now here's my question to you. Is that how you experience life? Do you see these two types of people that are seen in Psalm 1, the righteous and the wicked, experiencing the outcomes that are described in Psalm 1. More specifically, do you often notice that just the opposite is true? That those with no allegiance to Jesus get ahead, they prosper, they enjoy the good life, while followers of Jesus suffer, they experience confusion, oppression, and loss. We're in a summer series titled, This Is My Story, and this is the final uh, talk in this summer series. Next week we'll be beginning a a series that I've titled, Living as a Creative Minority, and we'll be looking at what that means from looking at the book of Daniel. But for today, this is the final talk in this series titled, This Is My Story. Each, Each Sunday, a speaker has come up and has brought to you a story from the Bible that has helped to shape their own life story. And so I want to do it today, but I, I want to do it not from Psalm 1 that was read to you, but from Psalm 73, from Psalm 73. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open to Psalm 73, and that's book number three of this, of this collection. So Psalm 73 opens up book number three of the collection of the Psalms. And if you want to take the blue Bible that's underneath your seat, that's page 485. And I've titled this talk, When the Story Doesn't Make Sense. 
when the story doesn't make sense? What do you do when it seems like the wicked prosper? When the bad guys win, the good guys lose. When Psalm 1 is reversed. I've wrestled with this over the course of my life. And so as I stand up to you today in front of you, this is not theoretical to me at all. This is very real to me. And I'm going to warn you in advance, so if some of you get offended by the reality of tone, you're going to hear in my tone today a tone that comes both from reality, but I think it also matches the tone of Psalm 73. So if it disorients you, I'm letting you know in advance. I've noticed over the course of my life, it's the people who ignore God, who oppress others, who ambitiously promote themselves to gain fame and fortune, who seem to achieve success and status in life and financial security for generations to come. Take it a step further, I've also seen many people who identify as Christians who live with the same priorities, the same ambitions, the same lifestyle as the other group for whom God is an attachment to their self-curated life. And they too experience success, happiness, health, and security. And it raises the question for me, is the life of faith really worth it? And by a life of faith, I mean faithfulness toward God. And while this is a real struggle, it's not a new one. It's described by a man named Asaph who wrote Psalm 73. So now that you have your Bible open, you can see his name in the preamble to this psalm. He lived during the reign of King David, which was about 1,000 B.C., and Asaph was one of the choir directors of Israel, or Jerusalem's national choirs. And so you'll see his name on multiple psalms. But if you notice, if your eye is going down to, to Psalm 73, notice the form. It begins with the ending. It begins with the conclusion. A psalm of Asaph, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, that form should not be something that surprises you because it's actually used in a lot of movies that we would identify, famous movies. Forrest Gump, Slumdog Millionaire, Big Fish, Gandhi, Saving Private Ryan, Fight Club, Memento. It's just a few of many. You can look at IMDb, type in movies that begin with a conclusion, and you get a ton of movies. So they begin with a conclusion, they begin with the ending, and then it causes you to say, ah, oh, how did we get there? How did that person get there? I want to know the backstory to that. And then that draws you in as the, the reader, or the listener, or the viewer, to want to know, how did the person get to this point? In the case of Asaph, his conclusion only emerged after a crisis of faith. And so he has a crisis of faith, and he ends up with this conclusion in verse 1. 
And verse 2 and following reveals Asaph's struggle to reconcile God's goodness with the reality of what he sees in life. So I want to read it just very quickly. Verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked. Every morning. So, how does he describe his crisis of faith? Look at verse 2. He describes it as a person who might be coming up on the stage, facing their worst fear, which is being in front of a bunch of people in public, and they take that first step, and their foot slips, and it threatens the stability of their entire body, and possibly is shaming them in front of hundreds of people. Ever been there? I've slipped on those stairs. Your hand goes down, you're like, oh, how embarrassing. For, the, for Asaph, though, this is his spiritual experience. This is what he's describing in terms of his spiritual experience of what is going on. Because one moment he seemed secure, and next everything seemed unstable. Why? Notice verse 3. He looked around and he compared. Ever do that? course. We all do. I do. He looked around and he compared it. What did he see? He describes it as seeing those who seem to ignore God, who live as if they're God, doing as they please, with their priority being their self-identity, their self-indulgence, and they have it better than those who seek to live in covenant faithfulness toward God. They're the beautiful people. They're the cool kids. Verse 4, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have a life that deserves to be captured on Instagram. They indulge in whatever they want to excess. Look at the image in verse 7. Their eyes swell out through fatness. I love Robert Alter and his commenting on this text. The literal sense in Hebrew is their eye protrudes from fat. Fat bulges around their eyes. He writes, this is one of several satiric images deployed in Psalms that represents the prospering wicked as physically swollen from the delicacies with which they have been stuffing themselves. Here, the eye is imagined peeking out from its envelope of fat. Pause, beat, 
beat. Who are you thinking about right now? Don't answer. So this is who came to mind for me. Jabba the Hutt. That's immediately who came to my mind was Jabba the Hutt. It's for all you kids out there. We know you're there today. What a great image. But what a great image of, this, of, of Asaph is he's writing about these people. And not only is their way of life successful, but it brings them status. It brings them public recognition. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them. That's the public recognition. And find no fault in them. This is about status and public recognition. They have more than their allotted 15 minutes of fame, Andy Warhol. They have far exceeded the 15 minutes. And on top of that, they have just smug contempt for other people as well as for God. Verse 11, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? That's contempt. It's smugness. And meanwhile, those who, seem, who try to live in covenant faithfulness toward God seem to get the raw deal in life. The struggle is, is not simply with why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? The struggle for Asaph is that he has lived faithfully, but toward what end? Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Why bother living a life devoted to God when you get pain and disappointment and when people crush you? And meanwhile, the people who ignore God, who ambitiously chase their vision of the good life, seem to have it all. Where is God's goodness in all of this? Have you ever wrestled with this? Like I said earlier, this has been very real to me. If you notice the progression, though, in verse of Psalm 73, in verse 3, he begins by looking around at others. He compares. It leads to envy. And then finally to bitterness, verse 14. But then something happens. He comes to his senses. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's talking to God. He's saying, I was so dumb. I was so dumb for thinking that the wicked might have the right idea, not realizing all the time that God was going to turn the tables on them. How could I be such a brutish beast? Verse 18. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He sees that however much a person prospers in life, if they are far from God, in the end, they will be destroyed. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And so in verses 23 to 26, Asaph clings to God 
despite the temptation to take his view of life from the reality that he sees around him. Nevertheless, verse 23, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So what triggered this reorientation? Let your eye go to verse 17. He says, all this changed when he went into the sanctuary of God, he says, and then I discerned their end. He went into the sanctuary of God. Let your eye look at that phrase. He went into the sanctuary of God. It's in the place of worship that Israel's memory prevails and her hope resides, Walter Brueggemann says. It's in the place of worship that Asaph sees reality as it really is, and he realizes he was looking through the wrong end of the telescope, and people seem big, and God seems small. And he concludes it's God's presence, verses 23 to 26, that matters more than the perceived advantage of the arrogant. Okay, so what? How does this story intersect with my story? Three observations, and perhaps it'll intersect with yours as well, but you can listen to how God might use this in your life as well. But I want to give you three observations of how this intersects with my story. The first is this. There's more to life than meets the eye. There's more to life than meets the eye. And what I mean by that is so often my struggle stems from what I see. My struggle stems from what I see. You see, it's easy to draw conclusions about yourself and about your life and about your future from what you see around you. And seeing leads to comparison, and it's in that act of comparing that my feet lose their footing. So there's more to life than meets the eye. Secondly, expectations, expectations, expectations. <laughs> I found that it's easy in life to want to naturally lash out and blame something, someone, or even God himself. But the core issue is frequently my expectations. If I'm a faithful follower of Jesus, then I should experience a life that's blessed, and I determine what that looks like. If I'm a faithful pastor to God's church, then I should experience people who are very excited to receive and act on things, or I should have a larger platform for greater impact, etc., etc., etc. What I realize is that it's very easy for me to secretly function off of some very toxic if-then sequences. Especially toward God. And so what happens when those are unaddressed over time, it's easy to become disappointed with God. And perhaps some of you are there. Perhaps if you're honest, you don't know why you still come to church. 
because you've been so disappointed with God. And your disappointment has moved into disillusionment. And if you had anybody that was safe to be honest with, you would say, you're even bitter toward God. Asaph has been there. And it's in those, it's in the midst of all that that I have to ask, what are my expectations? The third observation of how this connects to my own story is this, that I need a regular reality check. I need a regular reality check. And the reason why I put regular in there, because this isn't a one-and-done situation, it's not like uh, approaching a math problem where you plug in the formula and then you move on to the next problem because you've, you know, you've just mastered that problem. This comes back at you continually in life. It reoccurs. And so it requires a constant reality check, I have found. And that reality check is, in, is found in finding a God that is bigger than myself and bigger than other people around me. And that's why I need to be here each week to worship. Not go to church, but to worship. Because it's in that act that I have the possibility of receiving the reality check that I desperately need in life. It's in worship that I sing words I don't feel and which I often find hard to reconcile with the reality of my week or my year. It's in worship that I say yes to things that God reveals about himself and I step into fresh moments of trust for the coming week. And it's in worship that I can assume the posture of humility that's necessary for meeting God, for pursuing Him, and for being truly transformed by Him. And so when all of life is said and done, that's what will really count. Not my success, not my notoriety, not my wealth, but knowing and loving and trusting God as I know and love and trust Jesus. Thanks be to God. So today we'll have the opportunity to tangibly experience the love of God. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And that's what communion is all about. Jesus laid down his life so that we might enter into the fullness of life that God has for us, that we might receive the very life of God. You're moving around a little bit. I just said something super profound. More profound than my sermon was that statement that comes from Scripture, that Jesus laid down his life so that we might enter into the fullness of the life of God, that we might be brought into the life of God and share in his life. I can't wrap my mind around that. And yet that's what Jesus has done for us. And so as we come to the communion table, it is about us entering into that space where we are reminded that God is for us, that he has offered us his life, and he's offered us the fullness of his life. 
This is how we know what love is.